0: Beautiful story. So he really does do that. What a nice man. I'm a little for Clem. Talk amongst yourselves. Here's a topic Did Truman drop the atomic bomb to defeat the Japanese or to scare the Russians? (laughs) Discuss. We should have him on the show, Mike Myers. Yeah,
1: in, in character. Yeah. Uh I was watching a little bit of a Coffee Talk uh, mm-hmm. uh, the other day, and and then I heard that, and I thought, "Gee, that's really, we should have had him on." Linda Richmond <clears throat> should have Linda yeah. Richmond on to discuss. <laughs> right. Um, welcome back to uh, the Cold War. That was I'm doing that instead of my intro music, obviously this week, uh, episode ninety one.
0: Ray, mm-hmm. we're ninety yeah. hours in, baby. Wow! I hope Tony's happy because that's really all that my world is about—is making Tony happy. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. You can't. Hey, yeah. listen. No more making jokes about Tony on the show
0: because no, okay. he called no, me up the other day. He called me oh, up shit. and he said, "You know, Here what's
1: uh, why is Ray unhappy with me? Why does Ray not like me?"
0: <laughs> I love Tony. Yeah. Tony is- Tony's, Tony's the best,
1: yeah. yeah. So here we are in 1946, Ray, um, yeah. 100 hours nearly in, and we're up to 1946. <laughs> and i got to say, I think that's pretty yeah. good going. Considering- For us, yeah. How, what, what year are you up to in your World War II show?
0: Just about to do Pearl Harbor.
1: 1941. How many years yes. have you been doing your World See, War II show? How many, episodes like have, how many episodes have you done of your World War II show?
0: 227? And
1: you're up to 1941. So, like, I yeah. think we're doing okay by comparison. Right. I,
0: I, I would like to, to say, with Tony, hopefully Tony's listening, listening, I think we should stop, go back, cover the war as a, more, as a more preamble to get up to the Cold War. I think it'll make a lot more sense if we just start with Poland. But that, that's just me. We'll see what Tony finds out about that later. But that's just an idea.
1: I thought you were going to say, I think we should stop. Collaborate and listen Ace is back with a brand new invention Edition. Something Takes a hold of me tightly Like a harpoon dilly nightly Lightly. Will he ever stop? No, I don't know <laughs> Turn off the light And I'll go.
0: If um, I knew all those words <clears> I would have said that instead
1: Here we are in 1946 The Truman administration Has decided on a containment policy Right The question I have for you, Ray Is who yeah. is going to contain the containers <laughs>
0: Who is going to police the policemen? Um, mm. Well, I mean... They, He's going to watch the watchmen. There we go. There we go. Well, you, well you, They've got the moral authority, because uh, like we covered last time, or I can't remember exactly, March 5th, 1946, Churchill gives his Iron Curtain speech, followed by the Novikov telegram of September 27th, 1946. But of course, we all know that that was secret. So as far as the American people are concerned, all they have is Churchill's assessment of the situation. But you're right. If they do do this, if they do follow Churchill's instructions, all of them, not just the part about containment or engagement, um, who is going to make sure they don't go too far, too fast, too reckless? And the answer is there is no, no one. one. They better fucking get it right. <laughs> they better fucking get it right.
1: Yeah. So according to the Novikov telegram, as we discussed last time, the Soviets felt like they had to contain the US's aggressive imperialist expansion. Right. The US felt like they had to contain the aggressive Soviet communist expansion. Wow. And so the Americans are trying to figure out how they're going to do it and how much they're willing to spend on this containment. Now, in terms of Atomic Weapons Control. Mm -hmm. The United States Atomic Energy Commission had been set up. They developed a classified plan, which was all built around the idea of international control,
0: Uh
1: where the world is going to jointly monitor and control nuclear capability. This uh, report that they came out with in 1946, it became known as the... Acheson Lilienthal Report Submitted to Jimmy Burns Who's the Secretary of State Still Holding on to That job For a few More months Uh, His tenure Was like Yeah He had Tenure of A Trump Administration (laughs) Jimmy doesn't Like this Appointee Yeah
0: Yeah
1: In January 1946, the Acheson Lilienthal Report. Now, um, I'd never heard of this before Mm. until I was prepping for these episodes, so kind of fascinated by this. It was named after two guys, Dean Acheson, who was at the time the Under-Secretary of State, or as I like to think of him, the Bottom-Secretary of State. (laughs) Yeah, uh, wow. We've mentioned, mentioned him briefly before, but he's going to be a major character during the 1950s. Right. So remember that name, Dean Acheson. And the other guy was David E. Lilienthal, who was the chairman of the United States Atomic Energy Commission. Nice job. But mm-hmm. this report, the Acheson-Lilienthal report, was mostly written
0: by who, Ray? Um... I'm guessing Burns, but I don't know. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> Burns, no. It was uh, mostly written by the Atomic Energy Commission's Chief Scientific Consultant, Robert Oppenheimer.
0: Oh, so we're in good hands?
1: Yeah, well, remember, Oppenheimer was suspected of uh, sort of communist sympathies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's obviously the, the, the main genius behind the development of the atom bomb. Right. Um, and also, like most of the nuclear scientists as we talked about that worked on the Manhattan Project, um, they believed it was a tool that would bring about global peace. Ah. They didn't see it as a destructive force, although they, they obviously knew about that capability and they were worried about it. They wanted to see it be used for peace, and this is what... This report is all about the Atomic Energy Commission. All right. So basically, I don't know, did you did you pull this up and read it? The report.
0: I read the first paragraph.
1: Wow, that's yeah. uh, that's Maybe. an impressive commitment for somebody who doesn't even have a job. Um, now they, <laughs> the report recommended that yeah. all global fissile material, right, all of the uranium, basically and the plutonium around the world mm-hmm. be, be owned by an international agency called the Thunderbird... No, wait, <laughs> no, that's wrong. No, to be called the Atomic the atomic Development Authority.
0: All right. Sounds good, unless you're an American. Uh-huh.
1: Reminds, reminds me, you know... Um, in our uh, bullshit filter series, we recently talked about how at one point during the Nixon administration, he just decided they would buy the world's entire supply of opium.
0: Yes, fucking a.
1: That's how we're going to solve the drug problem. We'll just <coughs> buy all the drugs, right? And one of, and one of the guys in his ro- in the room in the White House said, um, "If you go ahead with this, <laughs> I am getting into the opium business because." <laughs>
0: <laughs> guaranteed. Well, sales. it's a good business model. Yeah, yeah guaranteed yeah.
1: customer. Yeah. And they went, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, good. Yeah, probably, good point. probably not a good idea. Right. <clears throat> so what? What the? What Oppenheimer's plan was? They'd have this agency, an international agency, that would buy and control every last ounce of material you could make a bomb out of, right? Atomic bomb in the world, and then they would. The agency would release small amounts of this. Two individual nations <laughs> for the development of oh. peaceful uses of atomic energy. Now, why are you cough, cough, bullshitting me, right?
0: <laughs> because oh, fucking communist uh, hippie uh, Oppenheimer, uh, this flies in the face of human nature. This is something that... Is going to, could lead to one of the greatest, or the, at the time, greatest weapon in the world. And we're going to trust everybody to turn it all over, which of course the Americans are the, have the most, I'm assuming. And we're going to turn it over to this international body. Um, but to paraphrase something you said at the beginning, who's going to watch the international body, and who is who's going to watch them, and who's going to watch them? I mean, this is this is literally the destruction or potential destruction of some some country, and we're just supposed to trust that everybody's going to hand it over? We'll parcel out a little bit because you're doing non-military applications or or uh, research to try and maybe create unlimited energy. Or, or I don't know. This is this is pie in the sky thinking. Maybe it's just because I'm paranoid we've just ended a war and everybody's going to be looking out for themselves.
1: Wow. Well, people like you, uh, Ray, obviously, that scuttled the whole thing in the first place.
0: Like, Thank you. Um, I'm bowing. The you see it. Yeah.
1: The United Nations would be watching these people, just created the new United Nations. It was about... Oh. International bodies uh, watching uh, the development of this and the world, basically. The yeah. world would be watching. The world would be monitoring what was going on.
0: Sure.
1: Um, now, the other interesting part of this plan was that the f- stockpiles of this fissile material and the production plants associated with you know, refining it and turning it into uh, – energy, Mm -hmm. nuclear energy, would be strategically distributed all around the world. Okay. So lots of different countries would have uranium and plutonium stockpiles that are owned by the international agency, but it's kept in all these different countries. Right. And the production plants would be kept in these different countries. So everyone would know what each country had. The international yeah. body would know. Okay, Russia's got this much plutonium, this much uranium. France has got some. United Kingdom has some. United States has got some. China's got some, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Yeah. France, right? Yeah. Um,
1: and they would, you know, there'd be a system in place of regular inspections. Uh, of you know, you, you, okay, yeah. you had you had fifty kilos of it, you know, last month. You still got fifty kilos yet? Yeah, no, okay, or you don't? Well, well fuck! What <laughs> happened to it? Et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so there'd be constant monitoring and inspection, right? Now the theory was this: if one of these countries uh, all of a sudden refused inspections, Uh-oh. refused access, right. everyone would know immediately. What was happening? Uh Uh-oh, they're building a bomb. And they'd know how much uranium they had. Right. And they'd have a little bit of a head start because you would have some warning. It would take, they reckoned, at least a year for that rogue country to build a bomb. Mm -hmm. So you'd have a year's warning to attack them or to build your own bomb or whatever it is. They're not going to take you by surprise. Oh, we got a bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Because you would know that they yeah. were doing it, because you know what they've got and that they've 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 stopped inspections. Now, um, not a bad plan, I think, despite your inherent negativity, suspicion, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. paranoia based on history. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Well, see, yes, based on history, but what the United Nations was trying to do, Ray, the whole idea of the United Nations was let's come together as a people, Uh as a a global population, and try and do a better job than we've done in the past.
0: That's great. But my point is that the United Nations itself is a brand new entity. There's still bugs in the system. You've got to work all this stuff out, and they're suddenly going to be in charge of what you could arguably say is the most important Discovery, aspect, threat, potential on the planet. So I... I well, I, yeah, but the, what's the flip side? What's the, what's the alternative model? I, I don't have a, one. Everyone... I don't, but that well, doesn't mean it's not a great well, a well,
1: idea. Well, they, they, what they were trying to avoid was everyone hiding away in the little dark recesses <laughs> of their country, right. secretly building nuclear right. bombs.
0: I have three words for you. Secret, underground, that's to um lair or lab so what what if I take my part given to me by the uh, United Nations that that uh that autonomous uh, that uh, division and then I start secretly trying to get my own uranium or or whatever if I can you
1: can't get your own because we've got it all
0: I got it all okay yeah all right the
1: United the United Nations would own it all
0: okay all right.
1: yeah where are you going to get it from Mars I no we, we, we we've got it all <laughs>
0: right. anyway. Anyway,
1: the report also said that the United Nations would have to give up its monopoly on atomic weapons that it had at the time. Right. What did I say?
0: United Nations, I think.
1: Fuck. Yes, the United States. Can we stop using the word united in the names of things? (laughs) We've got. The United Socialist, <laughs> Socialist Soviet Republic. Right. We've got the United States, United Kingdom, the United Nations. You know, I'm doing. My, I'm like, can we just come <laughs> just, up with a different fucking oh, word to call yeah, things? Really? Yeah. Does it all have to be united? Can we not? Can we? Can we come up with a what's what's like? Uh, you know, I've got well, a thesaurus for us. Like
0: it's simply called America. <laughs> <laughs> you know what about federated? Confederate, uh, uh, amalgamated. No no, 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 no. We can't do Confederate in this country. The whole Civil War thingy. Uh, no M-
1: mutual, collaborative. Mutual. Like there's collaborative. Lo- like
0: I just pull out a fucking thesaurus, people. <laughs> Pick when you're naming things, Pick, you know, <laughs> so confusing. Anywho, band of uh-huh, states. The
1: United States would right. have to abandon its monopoly. Right. Tell every country, including the Soviet Union, everything that it knows about how to build a bomb, Um, in exchange for all of these countries agreeing not to build bombs.
0: Here's how you do it, but you have to promise me you won't do it. And here's some visionable material. Yeah. Promise. Okay.
1: For building, no, for for the development of, you know, cheap energy. Right, right. Just don't build bombs. Right. Mm.
0: Okay.
1: Now, the report didn't mention exactly when the United States would destroy its nuclear arsenal. Um, And I'm not sure how many bombs they actually had at this stage. I know they were still in production, so they probably still had, you know, a dozen of them or so by 946. But it did say that they would have to destroy their own bombs too. So there would be no bombs. No one would have nuclear weapons. Do you that, really think- that was Oppenheimer's plan.
0: Okay, yep, that's fine. All right. And, you know,
1: it was backed by Dean Acheson and David Lilienthal. Mm-hmm.
0: All right.
1: So the background to this uh, is that at the end of 1945, uh, in, in mid to late December, there was a meeting of the Conference of Foreign Ministers in Moscow. Right. The uh, US, Great Britain, Soviet Union agreed... The foreign ministers of those countries agreed to create a United Nations Commission Mm -hmm. to advise on the destruction of all existing atomic weapons Mm. and to work towards using atomic energy for peaceful purposes.
0: Did you run across... I just have to ask, and I I don't have an answer to this, and if you don't, no big deal, but did you... (sighs) run across anything in your research as far? I mean, how how are the Americans feeling? Is there a wink and a nudge? Is there, no, we're really going to do this? Is there any guilt about what we did to Japan? Is this this is the best course of action? I'm, I'm just really trying to, I would really love to know the as much as possible the collective mentality of the people who are in positions of power to make this decision if we really 100% would have gone along with it.
1: I think uh, it was genuine. I mean, uh, after this, uh, Jimmy Burns and Truman, when they created their own, uh, you know, they commissioned to, to write a report on this, mm-hmm. told them, okay, here's the job. We're going to get rid of our nuclear weapons and we're going to share all the information with the world. Go go, tell us how we should go about doing that. Okay. Why, why, why would you go, if, if you didn't intend to do it, why would you go back home and, and put together a commission full of, top senior people and uh, tell them to go and, you know, focus on this for the next few months. Good point. And right. th- I think you'd go home and go, all right, well, fucking, you know, we're not, we're not going to really do that, right, so let's, <laughs> let's just, you know, right. let's just uh, pretend we're taking it seriously, but fuck those guys, right? No, they were, I think they were serious about it.
0: Right, okay.
1: So um, the United States, UK, Soviet Union decided to do this and they created this uh, new... Division inside of the United Nations, the Atomic Energy Commission, the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission, UN, UNAC, UNAEC, UNAEC, UNAEC. Yeah. Right, yeah. It was created on January twenty fourth, nineteen forty six. Six permanent members: the U.S., Britain, France, Soviet Union, China, and Canada.
0: <laughs> really, <laughs> I don't know
1: how I don't know how Canada got a fucking ah, look in there, but uh, good they on did. You. Yeah. And, and six rotating members. So it was a bit like the Security Council, mm-hmm. but um, particularly dedicated to atomic energy. Right. Now, that's when James Burns, again, currently Secretary of State, uh, created his own special advisory committee, headed by Acheson and Lilienthal to compose a report that the US government would present back to UNAEC.
0: Okay. All right.
1: And, of course, in that great American White House tradition, yes. a great committee of serious and intelligent men was given the commission to spend many months of their valuable time mm-hmm. researching and writing a very serious report about very serious subject. Oh, no doubt. So that when it was delivered very seriously to the president who commissioned the report, he could just go nah, Fuck that, and throw it in the bin.
0: <laughs> is that what Truman did?
1: That is what Truman did. Yeah, because by the time <laughs> they delivered the report, things have changed. So the commit, they they were they were given the job in January nineteen forty six. Right. Um. They you know they they ran around, wrote it, delivered it, and by that time they delivered it uh truman went nah fuck it we're keeping the bomb to ourselves fuck the rest of the world
0: things have changed and i'm guessing that and we'll get into this later that this he's by 1947 or whatever that he has realized and others have realized at work with him the political advantages of having tension between themselves and moscow
1: yeah yeah there's a lot of political advantages to that um, unfortunately that we will explore yeah but Truman's decided uh, because of some of the reasons we talked about in in the preceding episodes um, you know the the he, he learned that the Soviets had spies on the Manhattan Project he right. uh, you know he sort of had increasing fallouts with uh, with uh, sort of Stalin uh, things aren't going well there. Um, then there's the whole um, r- the long telegram from George Cannon and then Churchill's Iron Curtain speech. It's it's kind of all building up. I mean, and there's a lot of political pressure. He, he's under Truman, this is domestically sure. as well, to, to look tough. To look tough
0: yeah. on the and, communists. And I don't know the exact date of this, but at some point Truman or the American government finds out through spies of their own, or through whatever, that uh, Moscow itself is working towards its own bomb. So again, you can't trust him. So I, I think it was not wise, but it's certainly practical mm. for Truman to say, "Thank you for this very developed report in a nice leather-bound uh, book. Uh, you can throw it in the trash now." Yeah, but <laughs> the, very the, report,
1: the very thing the report—the very thing that the report was trying to avoid was all of these countries running around secretly building their own bombs and then threatening each other with them. They're like, no, 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 no. no. let's nip that in the bud right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Let's just everyone put all their cards on the table, right? Right. Uh, and, and then we can, we can all move forwards and avoid a Cold War.
0: Truman's like, no, nah, no, nah, I don't think so. But as America has most of this material, aren't we the biggest losers in a certain sense if everybody puts their stuff on the table and it goes under an, under an international body?
1: Well, if by avoiding the potential threat of being wiped out, uh, you consider that being a loser, yes.
0: Uh, no, I, I see. I concede your point. I'm just saying, in the short term, it's like in the, I know, sh- in
1: the short term, yes.
0: I know Burns was like, "No, we honestly got there first. We spent the money. We had the research. We had the people. We had the time because we had two oceans keeping us safe. And so this is our intellectual property. We earned it. We're not giving it up. So." And short-term, it's like, yeah, we would be the biggest losers. And Burns is, to some degree, still got an influence over uh, Truman. And he's against this.
1: Yes, he is. Why they commissioned the report, Uh, well, uh, who knows. But anyway, yes. So he couldn't come out, Truman this is, and just say, nah, we've changed our mind. Because... This is a big part of FDR's plan. Yeah. International atomic control. He's the guy who actually spent the two billion dollars building the fucking bomb in the first place. <laughs> right. Everyone knows that it was his plan to, to to put it out there in the world.
0: And he's revered. Um, he's a revered dead guy like John McCain. You can't <sighs> spit in the face of a revered dead guy. I mean, come on.
1: Unless you're me. Unless <laughs> me. Um, oh did I cop some filthy fucking I emails after did. our John McCain I show bet you the other day? Did. <laughs> Oh my God! Oh God! Well, what you, a what a religious figure he's turned into I, very I, quickly.
0: I don't care what you said, and I do remember it. But you're not the person who lowered the flag, raised the flag, refused to make a <laughs> comment, and then put out a comment. So so it it could have been a whole lot worse, uh, and he had a bigger oh. audience. But anyway,
1: now yeah, Truman just couldn't come out and say it. Right. A, a, Partly because if this is FDR's plan. Partly because it already agreed with the UK and the USSR. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, get, we're going to tell you we're everything. It, Don't you worry about it. Yeah, we're going to tell you everything. Now they've just changed their mind. I mean, the very first sentence of the atchison Lilienthal report says... We were given as our starting point a political commitment already made by the United States to seek, by all reasonable means, right? to bring about international arrangements to prevent the use of atomic energy for destructive purposes and to promote the use of it for the benefit of society. Mm, that sounds vague. A political commitment already made by the United <laughs> no, States.
0: That's, that's vaguely worded. I'm sorry
1: So that's how much political commitments are worth (laughs) Now Yeah So Truman comes up with something called the Baruch plan Yeah Or Baruch plan which was a sneaky way of painting the soviets into a corner not the first uh, it's not the last time they're going to figure out how to do this well, let
0: me ask you real quick so is this mm. is this truman going look okay we're not going along with this but like you said we can't just come out and say that we're not going to go along with it because we already promised an fdr yada yada so we need a way out of this so th- this is i'm guessing to purposefully sabotage their own endeavor
1: yeah and it's okay. it's it's, it's- It's Machiavellianly brilliant. Okay. Um, I got to hand it to these guys. So, um, there's this guy, uh, Baruch. Right. Baruch. Baruch's. Baruch, looking at the Baruch. I'm not sure. I think Baruch is how you pronounce it. So, one day before the United States was supposed to uh, present the Atchison Lilienthal report to the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission, Truman appointed a guy called Bernard Baruch as the American delegate to the UNAEC. Okay. Now Baruch was a seriously rich stockbroker dude, known as the Lone Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) Because he refused to join any other of the big financial houses. He was a Democrat, right. had been involved with both Woodrow Wilson and FDR, and had helped finance Truman's 1940 Senate race.
0: Ah, so he gets a plum job. I got it. Not that he needs it. He's rich. But,
1: yeah, he they go, hey, Bernie. Hello. Can you go and present this thing to the United Nations for me?
0: Okay. Yeah, exactly.
1: Now... He gets up in the UN and delivers a speech in, in, the, in June of forty six, stating that the United States would agree to transfer its bomb science and plans to the United Nations, but...
0: <laughs>
1: he has a gotcha. <clears throat> First, he says... The United Nations Security Council would have to begin a process of thorough worldwide inspections wow. to ensure that no state was attempting to secretly build a bomb at the moment.
0: That's fair. Not Is possible. it fair,
1: right? Is it fair?
0: Because they they know
1: <laughs> Stalin's building a bomb in secret. Right. And they're like, "Hey, listen, we built a bomb in secret."
0: Right. But, but
1: it- you can't build a bomb in secret. Right. Because something something <laughs> manifest destiny something something. <laughs> so, so, that's his first condition. The UN would secretly would, would would security council would inspections. Right. Secondly, any state caught secretly building a bomb, right. Not in the future, but right now, would be subject to a military attack by the Security Council.
0: Oh. Thirdly Hold on. Thirdly, yeah. yeah yeah go
1: ahead. N- no nation on the Security Council would be allowed to use its veto.
0: Oh fuck. And that's the only reason we remember out of the twenty five episodes how big that was, so if you're caught secretly developing a bomb, the u n has the right to commence Operation Fast and Furious, attack your ass, and you are not allowed to veto the matter i imagine yeah uh, i mean oh that's that's brilliant that's mwah.
1: now so the Soviet Union has to have you know at this point they can either come out and go. Uh, well, hold on a second. We are secretly building an atom bomb. Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, and where did you get the intel for how to build that? Well, we we stole it from you because we were spying on you. Um,
0: Who's got this magic outs- lasso around me making me tell the truth?
1: But outside of that, yeah, uh, you can you can totally trust us. <laughs> um, and they're not going to give up their veto. Uh, no. in the Security Council for anything.
0: So it's like oh, um, oh, and 3. There's no way Russia could go along with any part of Baruch's amendment or whatever it was. And then,
1: so then if the Soviets are the ones to reject uh, the deal, the Baruch plan, yeah. then it's the Soviets that are responsible for crushing the dream of... International atomic weapons control, not the Americans.
0: To which Roosevelt throws up his hand and goes, "I tried. Look, you saw me right there. I tried. Yeah. Really I did hard. my
1: best. I t- yeah, and I, I had a really, report, really a
0: presentation. Uh, I even brought the physical material with me, ready to hand it over. It's in my pocket. See it glowing. I am ready to hand this stuff over. But it's the Russians. What are you going to yeah. What are you going to do?
1: It's the damn commies, man. <laughs> it's the damn commies." So yeah, um, I like I, I, look, you know, you got to hand it to these guys. It was uh, clever, yeah, uh, evil but clever. <laughs> um, and it's not the last time they'll play this trick on the Soviets either, right? Um, we're going to see that um, down a little bit down the track with the Marshall Plan as well. Yeah. So that's what happened to the uh, International Atomic uh, Agency. Now. Uh Atchison and Lilienthal mm-hmm. and Oppenheimer weren't happy with the changes. They didn't approve of any no, of this. Of course not. But uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Stockbroker came up with the idea and uh,
0: Truman and Burns went along with it. What's your qualifications, sir? I'm incredibly rich. Thank you, sir. You're on, you, you have the job.
1: Truman wrote to Baruch uh, around about this time saying, uh, we should not, under any circumstances, throw away our gun until we assure the rest of the world can't arm against us.
0: Uh, Paranoid?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, okay, if they know the Soviets are building a bomb, Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to give up their own bomb. And then let the Soviets have a bomb. I get that, right, right. But you know, there's a way of going about this. So, an alternative approach if they if they had genuine intention to disarm the world <clears throat> would be for Truman to get Stalin on the phone, yep. and say, "Look, Joe, um, we know, <coughs> yeah." That, that you're building a bomb. And and you probably know that we know that because yeah. you have us bugged up the ass. So, listen, I'll tell you what. <clears throat> we don't have to make a big deal out of this. Right. You know, let's not make a big deal. Yeah. Let's just all agree that you're going to stop what you're doing um, if, only if, we agree to destroy our own nuclear weapons and and share with you everything and international agency. What do you reckon, Joe? Well, so let's, let's both give up our bombs. We actually have them. You're building them, but let's just give it up and uh, you know move forward. No one needs to know. Right. We don't need to make a big deal out of exactly. it you know. We what? don't need to stand up in front of the global community and point a finger at
0: you, right
1: let's just let's just do it quietly, you know, like fucking diplomats are supposed to do.
0: What if Stalin called his bluff and said, you know what, Truman, that's a brilliant fucking idea. Let's do it. I still don't think Truman's going to give up what he has.
1: No, you're right, which is why he didn't do that in the first place. Right,
0: exactly. (laughs) Because the guy might say yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fuck me. What if he says yes? Yeah.
1: The big question everyone was wondering about uh, at the end of 1946 and into early 1947 was to what extent the US would leverage its military and economic superiority in Europe.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, of course, as we've talked about before, Ray, US tradition uh, up until this point, up until the end of World War II, was that it wouldn't directly intervene in European affairs during peacetime?
0: No, that's what makes us special. We're not like the Europeans when there's a time of peace. We cut way the foot back on the military. We don't do power politics. We don't try and lord it over the people like the British. We are different, i.e. superior. That's not who we are. That's not our tradition. That's not our reputation. So are we going to do it now? Because we know... Because Stalin pointed this out to us uh, very, very distinctly when he said, look, there have been two great wars in uh, living memory, and they both come through Eastern Europe. It's, it's, you know, So that's clearly the problem. What are we going to do about this? Stalin goes, I've got a solution. I'm going to clamp down on Eastern Europe and make sure this never happens to us again. But now, like you were saying, the point is, what is America going to do? Are we going to use our military, our economic influence, and actually do something about this? And if we do, are we giving up our identity? And is the American people going to go along with this?
1: Yeah, exactly. So this whole history of being isolationist, Mm -hmm. we're just going to stick to our knitting, worry about what's happening (laughs) in our country. Sure. Yeah. Sure. We're going to invade Mexico and take over Hawaii and the Philippines and, uh, (laughs) you know. But... Outside of that, right, we don't interfere no. in the affairs of other countries, right? I want to be very clear about that.
0: It's outside the story of the. We, it's the outside story of the exceptions, right, right? Right? We right. don't interfere everything with got other exceptions. countries, exactly. Yeah. exactly.
1: Now there were lots of very prominent American politicians uh, in, in 1946, 1947 that still argue that America should stick to its isolationist uh, uh, sort of uh, Mm -hmm. traditions. Right. Uh, Senator Robert Taft of Ohio, the son of the 27th president, President Taft. Right. Um, And, by the way, he also goes on to be a prominent critic of the Nuremberg trials, but he was saying, hey, let's stay isolationist. Um, Joe McCarthy in Wisconsin was uh, advocating isolationism. Uh, the Chicago Tribune and the New York Daily News, both traditionally isolationist publications, were also calling for the US to stay out of Europe. Secretary of Commerce Henry Wallace, right. the guy who was FDR's Veep before Truman and mm-hmm. should be president now, <laughs> but was a bit too lefty, right? Um, he saw right through the Baruch plan. He gave some speeches saying that it was about threatening the Soviets with the bomb instead of diplomacy. He gave a speech at Madison Square Garden in September 1946, Right. <clears throat> saying that getting tough, and this is the quote, never brought anything real and lasting, whether for schoolyard bullies or businessmen or world powers. The tougher we get, the tougher the Russians will get.
0: Yeah. Common sense. He also...
1: He also said the US should recognise that we have no more business in the political affairs of Eastern Europe than Russia has in the political affairs of Latin America, Ooh. Western Europe and the United States. How is he still in the Truman government? Man, I think he's not for much longer. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but yeah, he's, uh, you know, so you have guys like that saying, listen, this is not... This isn't a good plan. Let's yeah. not do this. Right. Not just not just Wallace, but Chicago Tribune, Senator Taft, etc.
0: Well, the other thing about Wallace was that I mean, he pretty much nailed the Baruch plan. He said, "Look, this is not a policy to work things out. That's complete bullshit. This is atomic coercion. We're going to and, and because we did it the way we did it, we made the Russians look bad. We get to keep our bombs, we get to keep our secrets, we get to keep our material. This was never a sincere attempt. And like we alluded to a second ago, this guy is not long for the cabinet. But I just have to mention, I have to go back to Taft for a second. This guy was so isolationist but also at the same time, he was very powerful, and, and you, and you have really need to understand that. He was briefly the Senate Majority Leader. He was the leader of the Conservative Coalitions, a Coalition of Republicans and Conservative Democrats. They opposed any new expansion of the New Deal after 19, 1938. They, exposed, they, um, they were opposed to U.S. involvement in World War II up until the point of Pearl Harbor, and even after that, he was opposed to NATO. This guy is an isolationist through and through, but He's the son of a president. He's very powerful. And even John Bricker, who I think you might have mentioned uh, from Ohio, he's also against this. He was Dewey's running mate in the 1944 election. So these are some very powerful, well-respected and admired people are going, no, let's not project power. Let's not spend money. Let's turn inward, bring all our boys home and let the world take care of itself. And we will take care of us, just like we've always done when we're not invading other places.
1: Mm. And, of course, I mean, the, the, the argument to isolationism, as you said, is, look, these, we've got involved in these last two world wars, and now there's the potential that yeah. we're not safe with our big oceans. People can get to us. hundred years ago, it was a lot harder to get right. to us, but now it's easier. Still not very, you know, practical.
0: But it's getting easier. I mean,
1: As we've seen, here we are, how many years later, Uh, 70 years later, give or take, and Mm -hmm. the U.S. still has only been attacked once uh, on the mainland in all of that time, even despite planes, trains, and automobiles. And that was by a bunch of uh, guys with a pen knife. Um, So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, I I thought this was interesting. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but you're right. Box cutter. Box cutter. Wallace is not going to be in this cabinet very long. But here's a part I just want to make that has nothing to do with this, but it's important. This is almost like the Cold War meets the bullshit filter. When I was doing some research on Truman, um, so Wallace is going to be leaving the cabinet soon. And as right before he leaves, Truman says that, uh, privately, of course, Truman says that Wallace was a real commie and he was dangerous. But that was only the tip of what Truman would say. Privately, um, Truman used racist, strong racist sentiments before, during, and after his presidency. And I just want to give you a couple of examples because, for whatever reason, because I guess he's there for the start of the Cold War or he's seen as this Cold Warrior, whatever, he's been marbleized. None of the bad stuff kind of gets through. And I just wanted to, to do this real quick. So in 1911, The year he turned 27, Truman wrote a letter to his future wife, Bess, and she said, I think one man, he said, I think one man is just as good as another, so long as he's honest and decent and not a nigger or a Chinaman more, t- 20, oh, I, I could go on all day long, but I'll just do one more, <clears throat> 20, 25 years, I mean, the, he, he, talked, oh, sorry. Like, he talked like this like all the time, the setup, but the private- setup for that
1: is great, that's like a great stand up routine, like you got this setup, I think every man is as good as the other, as long as he's not a nigger. <laughs> or a Chinaman.
0: That's like, you sure he wasn't no. a stand up comic? He might have been before he became he had a president. player president. Wow. And, and there's just one more. So, so that's, you know, that's 1911. No, no. 25 years later, more than 25 years later, Truman, who was a U.S. Senator from Missouri, wrote a letter to his daughter <laughs> describing the waiters at the White House as an army of coons. In a letter to his wife in 1939, he referred to it as Nigger Picnic Day. He constantly <laughs> used the N word, but in private. And when he became president, he toned it down even more. But it was still in his everyday speech. When, and but, he, that, he, that's, but when did when when yeah,
1: did the N word become politically I, incorrect in the I, United States? I oh think yeah, it was politically no. correct up until. The 90s, really, (laughs) wasn't it? In certain circles,
0: but the point is is between China and I and I did copy some other quotes, but I deleted because after about seven quotes, oh god, this is too much. But the stuff he says about Chinamen, about Africans, about Mexicans I mean, this guy was a fucking racist, but it's been dropped from history, even though his quotes they're easy to find. You could easily, I mean, I just was. Copied and pasted and left and right. I went, no, no, it's too much. But the point is, so he he calls Wallace a liberal and that he's dangerous. But that's calm compared to how he described other people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. By the way, when I said using the N-word was politically correct, I didn't mean it was correct. I mean.
0: <laughs> right. Right,
1: right, right. I could take myself out of the that gut. one. I mean, people would were still using it. Yeah you know, fairly uh, uh, commonly up until, I'm guessing the 80s, something like that. I mean, I'm pretty sure you you go back and you watch a lot of Hollywood films in the 70s, uh, I'm pretty sure it still gets thrown around fairly uh, liberally. Wow. Yeah? Yeah. I'm thinking. I'm thinking Clint Eastwood films. I'm thinking, you know, French Connection style films. I'm well, thinking. Though it was still getting used in Hollywood up it, until the I, '80s.
0: Probably. I think. In, yeah, I think in that around that time. In outside Hollywood, of ta, outside right. of
1: Tarantino right. films, still gets used in Tarantino films. Instead of, outside the, of Tarantino films,
0: yeah. Instead of the N word, I think I think they substituted boy. They would use boy as to denote yeah. So, uh, but yeah. So, but right. the point is, it, it's still. That's still who he was. Um,
1: Blazing Saddles, used a lot in (laughs) 1974.
0: But they were purposefully Uh, being...
1: Yeah, I know, but you still couldn't even purposely do it. Oh, that's true. uh, Unless you're Tarantino today. Full Metal Jacket, 1987. Yeah. Uh, then you had the, you know the classic uh, gay niggers from outer space, nineteen ninety two.
0: Tell me, that's a poor uh, film.
1: Features black homosexual male aliens who commit gendercide to free the men of Earth from female oppression. Wow. Uh, whew, there you go. That's a
0: great plot. Anywho, <laughs>
1: anyway. uh, dear me, how did we get onto that? <laughs> oh yes, you were. That was me, Truman. You were. Character assassination of Truman. Um, now uh, back to uh, Henry Wallace. Yeah. Um, in the same speech, he also said the Russians needed to stop conniving mm-hmm. against the U.S. and and had to stop teaching that communism must triumph even by force if necessary. Yeah. He said, And we must be certain that Russia is not carrying on territorial expansion or world domination through native communists faithfully following every twist and turn of the Moscow party line. So he was was reasonable. He was saying, look, yeah. the Russians need to cut this shit out. We need to cut that shit out. But as you said, Truman fired Wallace, <laughs> not long after that, right. uh, from the cabinet, privately calling him a real commie and a dangerous man. Now, two weeks after Wallace got fired, two White House aides, uh, Clark Clifford and George Elsie. Mm -hmm. Clifford ended up being a senior advisor to uh, every president from Truman through to Carter, as well as being Secretary of Defence for a few years in the late 60s. Elsie was a naval commander who had been an advisor to FDR and Truman and ended up becoming the president of the American Red Cross. But anyway, they were were, um, just White House aides. I mean, I hear White House aide, I think, like Donna Moss and the West Wing. Right. I think Donna Moss. They're not like Donna Moss, White House aide. They're like serious dudes who just don't have an official title. They're just writing reports and shit. They submitted an 82-page report on Soviet-American relations that Truman asked them to prepare. And they took a hard line, saying the Soviets wanted to take over Europe and the U.S. needed to do everything in its power to stop them.
0: Now, this report, I'm going to let you go on, but this report was called the American Relations with the Soviet Union Report. And it was requested specifically by Truman, uh, as he told one of these men, as you know, justifying asking for this report. Uh, the president, who was growing frustrated by Soviet actions, wanted to be ready to reveal to the whole world the full truth about Russian failure to honor agreements. So when he has that kind of wording and he's giving this uh, job to these guys, he's, I don't know, in some ways he's already letting them know about his expectations. But yeah, they they work really hard. They talk to a bunch of people, senior military, civilian officials. They get a lot of information and they put it together. And I don't know if I would call it unbiased, but I don't think Henry Wallace would have uh, approved of it very much. Yeah, it's
1: a pretty hard-line report. Um, they say Stalin only understands tough talk and military power, so there's no point negotiating God. with Stalin. There's no point trying to use diplomacy mm-hmm. with Stalin. We just need to get in there and kick some ass, take some names. Ah, Merka! Great story about this Elsie guy, by the way, George Elsie. Mm-hmm. He once gave this advice to Truman. The president's job is to lead public opinion, not to be a blind follower. (laughs) You can't sit around and wait for public opinion to tell you what to do. In the first place, there isn't any public opinion. The public doesn't know anything about it. They haven't heard about it. You must decide what you're going to do and do it and then attempt to educate the public about the reasons for your actions.
0: Wow. Hmm.
1: So people don't know shit, Mr. President. Right. They'll just fucking go along with whatever you tell them. Um, You know, I think this is something that uh, your current president, uh, Mr. (laughs) Trump, has taken to heart. Um, The historian Thomas A. Bailey uh, wrote a number of popular books. He was a Stanford historian. In a book uh, he wrote in 1948 called The Man in the Street, he wrote, because the masses are notoriously short-sighted and cannot see danger until it is at their throats, Mm. our statesmen are forced to deceive them into an awareness of their own long-term interests. Deception of the people may in fact become increasingly necessary unless we are willing to give our leaders in Washington a freer hand. The yielding Of some of our democratic control over foreign affairs is the price that we may have to pay for greater
0: physical security. So we're children, and treat us that way.
1: Yeah, and you know, interestingly enough, when you read a lot of um, stuff that comes out of uh, uh, domestic political strategists. Mm -hmm. In the United States, that's a common uh, motif that you hear. Look, the people are dumb. People don't know shit. Um, Just tell them something to distract them and go and do what you need to do. Damn. Lie to the people. Keep them happy so they'll just go back, watch the football, and eat their hot dogs while we get, get, get on with business. It's basically... The viewpoint of the mainstream political strategists.
0: Shouldn't a leader try to educate and have a discourse with the American people or with his or her people and explain to them as opposed to guiding them or manipulating them? Or am I just being unrealistic? Well, you know, if, if, you, if you look at it at the
1: surface, at the surface. Right. What you think happens is that a politician campaigns uh, to be elected and says, if you elect me, I will do these things. Mm -hmm. And if the public opinion is aligned with the things the politician says he or she is going to do, then they get elected. Right. So you would think that the president would be following public opinion the way to get elected is to tell the public what you're going to do, and they go, oh, yeah, that's yeah, good, and then you go do it. <laughs> right. But, these, but the strategists go, no, 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 no. You tell them whatever you need to tell them to get elected, then you go do what you're going to do, and then you come back to them later and say, listen, I know I said I was going to do this, but I did that. Let me tell you right. why I did that. It is, it's, it's in your own best interest, all right? Yeah.
0: Actually, I can't tell you why. It's secret, yeah. but you've got to trust. I'm looking right in the camera. You've got to trust me on this.
1: If the president does it, then it must be legal.
0: For your own good. So
1: Clifford and Elsie put out this report. Let's go hard line on the Soviets. Truman likes that, but he's got a problem. Yeah. He can't just do it. He needs a justification. He needs a burning of the Reichstag, Ray, before he can go all hardcore. He needs some planes to fly into some buildings in the middle of Manhattan. Oh he needs uh, a naval base in Hawaii to be bombed. He oh needs God. the Lusitania to, to be bombed. Yeah. He needs the, uh, what was the Vietnam furphy that Johnson used? The oh, uh, shit. The, the the something incident. Fucking hell. Come on, man. You're I, an American. I am. Um, anyway, like skips it. my mind. People listening to this know what we're talking
0: yeah. about. Now, he needs an incident. Yeah. yeah. And. Yeah. And he got one, kind of. Right. But before that, just to say the report ended with, you know, America has to do this. It's up to us. If the U.S. fails to act with vigor, there will be a repeat of the 1938 Munich appeasement. So, again, this is just this is specifically for Truman. No one else is allowed to see it. He is reading this. It pretty much fits with what he wants. And now he feels like maybe he has a righteous cause. And just to show you, I guess, um... I don't know maybe how sensitive this was this report was not made public until 1968
1: mm, appeasement well wow, that's a magic word isn't yeah. it in this weak, era
0: weak coward appeasement you can't do that you can you can lose just by being called weak or or being an appeaser and Truman was not going to mm-hmm. go down and we'll get into the politics of it later. But like you said, he has one eye towards the upcoming presidential presidential election. And he's going to try to not only secure his base, but also what do I have to do to make the world a safer place, at least for Americans.
1: And I think in 46, uh, the Democrats, uh, got seriously beaten yes. up in the midterms, in
0: both houses, S-
1: yeah, and so I think the Republicans took control of both houses for yeah. the first time in like 40 years or something. So he's, uh, yeah. you know, the domestic political considerations are front and centre with a lot of what he's doing. We'll talk more about that in the next episode. But just to wrap up this episode, he got a justification. Uh, on February 21st, 1947, the British government, now under Clement Attlee,
0: mm-hmm.
1: informed Washington that they would no longer... The UK, this is, be subsidizing the pro Western forces in Turkey and Greece.
0: Ooh. Oh, no. Now, yeah, I think we talked about a little bit about this before. Britain had been around almost like a colonial power since the 19th century. But even Britain, that used to control what one fourth of the world, this great empire that once was, will not or could not any longer take care of responsibility for European security. They're stepping down, and they're letting us know, I guess, because they expect us to step up.
1: Yeah, and and people may recall that Turkey and Greece were part of the uh, naughty agreement, the percentages agreement, the naughty document that Churchill and Stalin had signed. Um, Stalin had said, yeah, sure, you take them, do what you want. I know the Mediterranean's important to you. You know, you've got yeah. to get all that opium yeah. shipped. Oh, okay, we're idea. not doing the opium wars anymore. Anyway, yeah. whatever it is that you're shipping right. through those lanes now. Sea lanes,
0: yeah.
1: Now, this is basically a clear sign that the old empire is not going to take responsibility anymore for European security because they can't afford to. Yeah. Um, and so the US strategists have got to try and figure out what are we going to do about Turkey and Greece. They were, they were concerned that if... The, the UK pulled out all of their funding and military support mm-hmm. that there would be revolutions in these countries right. and they would fall into the Soviet bloc. Remember that the UK had already had to crush a communist revolution in Greece to keep oh, yeah. the king and his uber right-wing government in power. <laughs> right. Even though it was the communist insurgents who had... Provided the backbone of, of the resistance mm-hmm. against the Nazis in Greece. Right. After the Nazis were gone, the British turned around and crushed the communists. Go, well, listen, yeah, you can't, you, we're <laughs> happy to help you keep out the German fascists. Right. But you have to keep your internal fascists in power right. because, you know, we can't have people overthrowing kings. What What's the world going to come to <laughs> if the people overthrow kings? God, we, we didn't <laughs> go bankrupt fighting
0: Napoleon for nothing 100 years ago. Come on. So the the people on the ground are rising up. Britain's been funneling money in to keep them down. And now that Britain can't do that anymore, the people might rise up, take over. Yeah, they might go communist or they might not. They just want to have a say in their government. And that's bad, I guess. Just Yeah, because- that's bad. There's a chance, game theory here, if there's a 1% chance they'll go communist, that's bad.
1: Yeah. Okay. Because once you go communists, <laughs> you never go something. <laughs> something. Yeah. Capitalist? <laughs> I don't know. We'll work on it. Now, yeah, the history of, of Britain in these two areas, uh, as you suggested before, goes goes way back. Um in the 19th century, as the Ottoman Empire was sort of growing weaker and weaker, the British stepped up to help them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was something that people may not realize. You know, we, we, we think about Britain fighting the Ottoman Empire yeah. in World War I, but before that, they were supporting the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> they even, the Brits even fought in the Crimean War in the 1850s to help out. Right. The Ottomans. Remember, we talked a little bit about that, I think, earlier on in this in this mm-hmm. series. Kyle or was Scott, it the... No, I think it was the um, Syrian Civil War series on the bullshit filter. Right. Oh, no, no, it was this Yalta. series Yalta. because... Yalta. 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 They went out to look at the battlefield in right. Yalta. Yeah. yeah. I think we did it on Syria too. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Brits saw the Ottoman Empire as an essential component in terms of the power balance of the region. Uh, As we've talked about many times before, this is a big reason why the British fought France as well under Napoleon, is the British model um, uh, for Europe for a very long time was to keep it fragmented Mm -hmm. so they would all fight each other and uh, no single country would become big enough or powerful enough right. to become a threat to England. So uh, th- that's why they were supporting the Ottoman Empire for a long time. Um, and then after World War I, even though the war ended for most countries in sort of 18, uh, 1919, uh, it didn't end for Turkey. The, the First World War led straight into the Turkish War of Independence, which went from 1919 to
0: 1923.
1: Wow. Now, there were secret wartime agreements. Again, I'm sure we've talked about this at various points, the Sykes-Picot Agreement between the British and the French to divide up the Ottoman territory yes. uh, once they got control of that region. All that was left behind to become the Turkish Republic under Ataturk was a tiny little bit of Anatolian heartland that is what eventually became Turkey. Mm. And the rest of the Ottoman Empire, the British and the French, took for themselves and then eventually they gave some of it to the Jews and said, hey, why go. don't you have this bit? No one's living there. What about <laughs> us? Shut up. You're not living there.
0: <laughs> and move.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, the Turkish remembered that after World War II. They had lost their status as being one of the great empires. They mm-hmm. felt betrayed by the British yeah. who had formed during the war secret alliances with the Ottoman Arabs to stir up revolts against their Turkish imperial rulers. They went, entered into the Sykes-Picot Agreement with the French um, secretly pretending to be on, the, you know, to to, to be supportive right. of the Ottoman Arabs. Hey, yeah. I mean, anyone anyone who's seen um, fucking uh, Lions of Arabia mm-hmm. knows a, a fictionalized version of this story. Anyway, the British were saying to the Arabs, "Hey, listen, you rise up right. against the you know the 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 Turkish imperial rulers, and when this is all over, yeah, we will support your." Claims to all the land, and they were like, "You fucking beauty, we will go and <laughs> die for that."
0: That's right, and they did.
1: And at the end of, end of the war, the Arabs said, "Great, can we have our land now?" Uh, and the British went, ah, "What? <laughs> Who? Who are you? Have no, changed. I, yeah, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think you're out, you're, you're dirty, smelly Arabs. You can't be trusted <laughs> no. with land. land. <laughs> no, we're going to control it with the French, and then we're going to give it to the uh, European Jews. Yeah, that's mm.
0: best for everybody." Now,
1: um, if the, so, so there was a lot of tensions there, is my point, going way back, and if the British pulled out mm-hmm. and wiped their dick on the curtains as they left, there's a good chance there would be a Turkish revolution.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So that's Greece and Turkey. Now, uh, during a meeting on the 27th of February, 1947, Dean Acheson referred to the potential collapse of Greece if the Brits pulled out as Armageddon.
0: Ooh. Yeah. He compared uh, the countries of the world to a barrel of apples, uh, and I want to talk about that in a moment. Like barrels in an apple infected by a rotten one, he warned, its laws could infect others, like Iran and all of the East, and maybe even Africa and Western Europe, which sounds bad on the surface, but then you want to stop and go, um, do you have any proof? Do you have a report? Is just you, this your intuition? Is it your crystal ball? I mean, it's a it's a scary speech, but... What do you have to back it up? That that would have been my question. But as we've seen in this episode, this show, and other episodes, there doesn't seem to be a lot of follow through on statements like this. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, invective thrown around right. here. A lot, a lot of fear mongering. I'm a Atchison uh, said that if Greece was lost, it could infect Iran and all of the East. Yeah. Even Africa and Western Europe. And this is, of course, where the domino theory started. But again... You lose one country to the communists, you lose them all.
0: Yeah. But again, um, is that just you pulling something out of your ass or do you have research done by professionals?
1: A lot of (laughs) ass-pulling here, right? A lot of ass-pulling. A lot of... A lot of cognitive bias, <laughs> believing what you want to believe. Right. Because it uh, suits your purposes oh, here. Okay. Just check. So anyway, just to wrap this episode up, um, big question here. Uh, uh, Truman's on board. We need to get involved in Turkey and Greece. But how right. are we going to get the American public on board? How are we going to get the isolationists <laughs> in Congress and right. in the media on board? But it's not like Turkey and Greece are in any immediate threat of being invaded by Stalin. He'd yeah. already promised Churchill he'd stay the fuck out of it. I mean, there's no reason why that's going to change just because Britain's pulling out. Um, he's got no interest in Turkey and Greece as far as we know, as far as anyone knows at this stage. Uh, yeah, I remember when the communists in Greece were getting their asses kicked by the British, Stalin stayed out of it. was yeah. like, nah, no. you're, sorry, guys, I, you're on your own. I gave you my yeah. word.
0: And as we're going to find yeah. out... Stalin sometimes keeps his word. He certainly did here. And, um, yeah, but it doesn't matter to the Americans.
1: No, here's the thing. My take on Stalin is, in terms of these international discussions, he always keeps his word. Right. But, you know, as we saw at Yalta, he makes sure that the word that he's given is fairly (laughs) loosey-goosey. So, if it's like, yeah, listen, we'll work something out. Don't you worry about it. That's his word. Yeah. Like,
0: it it, it. might not work out the way you want it, but
1: yeah. 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 And this is the thing that we'll cover this in in more episodes, particularly when we get into, I think, Walter Lippmann and some other people's criticisms of the way that Truman pitched this. The way it was positioned to the American people by Truman and Burns and successive administrations was that Stalin broke. The Yalta Agreement, but they kind right. of said he broke the spirit of Yalta. What's that? Um, yeah, <laughs> what's that? But what he really did is, you know, we we took twenty five episodes of Yalta <laughs> to, to, to be very clear about. There was there were no hard agreements on right. Yalta. It was like, yeah, look, listen, yeah, we'll work it all. It's too complex right now. We'll work it out at some point.
0: Don't uh, we'll work it
1: out. We'll yeah. just work it out when we work it out. But
0: the broad strokes um, have been taken care of at Yalta. The rest we'll take yeah. care of. Yeah.
1: We'll take care of. It. Yeah. So, to my and, and so, you know, when they were taken care of, they were like, nah, we want it our way. And they're like, well, we want it our way. And he's like, well, we've got a big army. So, yeah, you know, we, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he didn't break any promises, really. He just was intransigent on certain um, yeah. issues. Yeah. Uh, and and they couldn't they couldn't say we got out negotiated, right? By Stalin and Yalta, so they said uh, you know he broke his promise, but yeah. that's that's not really what happened, right?
0: And, and and just like you said a second ago, I mean this thing with uh, Turkey. In Greece, there is no problem. This is an abstract. There's something that's going to maybe happen in the future. How in the fuck do you ask for a shit ton of money for something that's abstract that may or may not happen in the future?
1: Well, you you come up with an abstract explanation for it, a universal, something that Truman cooked up with Burns and George Marshall. How do you generalise the problem? Forget Turkey and Greece. How do you talk about a broader theoretical, hypothetical (laughs) issue that would get the American people and politicians and media to support a general concept of ongoing overseas American commitment? And so a Republican senator from Michigan, Art the Vandenberg, not to be confused with Art Vandelay from <laughs> Vandelay Industries, right? is different guy. Both you know, very well respected yeah, in yeah. their own fields, I have to say.
0: Yeah.
1: Art Van, no, Art Vandenberg. Right. Another one of these Republicans who opposed US involvement in World War II um, right up until Pearl Harbour. Urged Roosevelt to reach an accommodation with Japan before Pearl Harbour. Anyway, as he famously put it to Truman at this stage, Truman would have to scare the hell out of the American people to get Congress on board. And so, scare them, he did.